Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you so much for your welcome uh, to preach again this morning. You're not going to be vacant for long, so the need for supply has come to an end, and we rejoice with you in that. Craig Dyer is one of my probably one of my top three friends, um, and we've been following this journey with him in in prayer. Uh, and we are delighted, obviously, uh, that, that, that he's coming here uh, to share with you. It's been fantastic. Thank you for the opportunities you've given me over the last few years to come and share with you and get to know some of you a bit better. I, I, I do feel at home here. And uh, in, in my retirement now, if I were to retire to the Costa del Hamilton, which is possibly unlikely, but I might come back to my South Lanarkshire roots, who knows, um, then Hamilton would be a good place for us. This would be a good place for us. We felt at home here. And um, I just wanted to take this moment to thank you all. I've got to know some of you, and uh, you've been very warm in your, uh, in your fellowship and your appreciation of the ministry here. So I just wanted to take a few moments to thank you for that. Now to work. Let's uh, get our Bibles open and either turn them on or... Uh, yeah, there's a few being turned on. So turn in or turn on your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Last time I was here, we preached a little section from the earlier part of Galatians. This is part of a whole Galatians series, as you probably guess, so I'm picking some highlights for you. And uh, we looked at Paul's CV the last time. We looked at, at his life, his background, and, and, and the things that mattered to him as part of his identity. And, and we're going to look at some really searching, serious stuff uh, today, and it's my prayer that God will uh, touch all of our hearts as we as we look at, at our identity in Christ around the issue of slaves or sons, slaves or children. How do we live? Well, let's see what Paul has to say about that. Galatians three twenty six. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the holy state. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law so that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow 
I have wasted my efforts on you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's take a moment's prayer. Father, as we turn now to this passage, I ask that you will fill me with your spirit and fill our hearts with a hunger and a desire to hear your voice, to feed on your word, and to allow it to radically change our inner life. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, it's important for us to remember as we look at a book like Galatians that Paul isn't just dealing with a problem threatening the little cluster of churches there in uh, central Turkey, in uh, Anatolia, as we know it. He's addressing issues that define the Christian gospel per se, the fundamentals of what it means to be Christian. But Paul isn't just concerned about getting the gospel right in theory, because we're quite good at that, aren't we? We're, we're good at the theoretical box ticking of what it means to be Christian. That's not Paul's fundamental concern. The reason that getting the gospel right in theory is important is that we are dealing here with the eternal well-being of people just like ourselves whether in the first century or the 21st century. So this isn't a theoretical exercise. Getting the gospel right is an exercise that actually matters eternally. And because that is the case, this is not just, getting the gospel right isn't just a Galatian problem here in the first century, but it's a global problem in the 21st century. Because if we get the gospel wrong, it's not just our lives might be somewhat diminished here, but the eternal consequences of getting that wrong are catastrophic. For there are two ways to live and two ways to die. There's the way of life and hope and salvation, and there's the way of death, judgment, and despair. So as we grapple with these difficult passages in Galatians, and it is a challenging book. We're grappling actually with the issues of our own eternal destiny. Which way are we on? Which way are you on this morning? Now previously in chapter 3, which we haven't covered, Paul has been describing and explaining the way of salvation. And I want to just contextualize this passage quickly by picking up a couple of key points that he makes in chapter 3. Firstly, in the first half of chapter 3, Paul has been telling the Galatians that salvation is by faith and not by works. That's verses 9 and 10 in, uh, in chapter 3. And then in verses 15 and 26 of chapter 3, he's been telling the Galatians that not only is salvation by faith and not by works, he's telling them it's by promise and not by law. Look at verse 18. The inheritance, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So the inheritance, the salvation of the world, depends. if it depended on the law, then it doesn't depend on a promise. But God gave the promise of salvation to Abraham uh, based on a promise alone, not on stuff to do. 
And so now in these verses, at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, Paul explains the implications of what that salvation looks like. Because what he wants us to understand is that salvation makes us children, not slaves. Salvation makes us children, not slaves. And the key text for us this morning you'll find in verse 7 of chapter 4. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. Your version might say, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. The literal translation is son. But when Paul uses sons and sonship in the New Testament, they're not gender words. They speak of sons and daughters. It's a word in the first century that would have immediately been associated with inheritance. The firstborn son idea. That's the idea here. Uh, more dynamically, the, the, the translation is best, um, is best rendered children. And back in the 1980s, in his great book, Knowing God, you see, I'm dating myself already. I'm having to go back to the 80s for quotes. That, this worries me. Um, because many of you are contemporary, obviously, and, well, we're all contemporary, but many of you were born in a much more contemporary era. I won't have heard of Jim Packer. If you haven't, you should. Uh, and go and find his book, Knowing God, which was seminal back in the 80s. But in his great book, Knowing God, Jim Packer said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, ask them how much they make of being God's child. That's how central Packer saw sonship and child understanding yourself as a child of God in terms of the Christian life. So from chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, as we dig into our passage now, Paul tells us three things about being, a, about being children of God that lay the foundation for what he says in chapter 4. And the first thing he says about being a child of God is that a child of God has Jesus. Do you notice that in verse 26? You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now what Paul wants us to understand here is that everything about salvation comes from Jesus. Everything, from start to finish. There is salvation in no one else, in no other name than the name of Jesus. Salvation doesn't come by keeping rules. And it doesn't come by observing rituals. And in fact, Paul uses baptism as an example in verse 27. Now I have to tread carefully here because this is a church that defines its denomination by a ritual. A Baptist church. Just waiting for the roofs to drop. What Paul, wants to know, what Paul wants us to know is that becoming a child in God's family doesn't happen by keeping external rituals, not even baptism. Paul knows you can be water baptised, an external ritual, and yet, hear this, not be united to Jesus. Which is why I don't think Paul's speaking about water baptism here in this passage, having said all that. He's speaking about being clothed in Christ. Being drowned in Christ, if you will. And the baptism that does that 
isn't water baptism, isn't it? Is it? Water baptism doesn't clothe, clothe, clothe us with Christ. Water baptism is the sign that we have been clothed with Christ. The baptism that clothes us with Christ is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's the baptism Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, when he says, by the one spirit, you were all baptized into the one body. So these people have Jesus. All of them who were baptized into Christ at salvation have clothed yourselves with Christ. It's all about him, and, it, and they all have him. Secondly, do you notice in verse 28, they have each other, these children of God. Verse 28, Paul says, in a very misunderstood verse that we'll have a look at in a bit more detail in a second, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know how many of your congregation are at Keswick at the moment. There'll be a few. What's the big text at the main stage in Keswick? Well, it's this verse, isn't it? Those five words, all one in Christ Jesus. We have each other. When we become a child of God, we are joined together with one another. And that means that racial and social and sexual barriers and prejudices are dealt with in the gospel. In Christ, says Paul, these distinctions are no longer important. They don't matter anymore. Now, notice they're not removed. Becoming a child of God doesn't change your race. It doesn't change your social status. And it doesn't change your gender. But what Paul wants us to know is that these three elements, our race, our social status, and our gender, are not the things that define our identity. Now, this is first century. It seems quite 21st century to me. Let's take male and female. Being female, ladies, in the first century was almost totally negative. Certainly for Jewish women. Imagine, imagine being a Jewish woman, just a Put yourself, just put yourself in this headspace for a second. And you go down for breakfast and um, the morning prayer's being said by your husband. Every morning of every day in life, he would thank God that he wasn't born a woman. Yeah, really. <laughs> but the gospel, the gospel raised womanhood to a dignity and a glory and an equality that the world had never seen before, ever. The gospel grants women equality of rank and status and access in the family of God, whilst at the same time, wonderfully, retaining all the glory and beauty of what it means to be a woman. Now, isn't it interesting that each of these identity markers, our racial, social, and sexual 
identities remains so divisive in our culture today. Because, folks, human beings don't change. They just express all their stuff in the culture of their day. It's the same stuff today as it was then. And ironically, the world is desperately trying to create conditions where equality and diversity can properly thrive, and they're onto something. Do you see? They know that that's how we're meant to be. They know that we're meant to be equal and they know that we're meant to be diverse. It's built into their eternity-shaped space inside them. That eternity that God has placed in our hearts. It's part of the divine nature. The stamp of what it means to be human. Created in the image of God. Equality and diversity can properly thrive. But they can only thrive under the rule of God himself, do you see? Because the irony is that we in our culture over the years have rejected the only place where it's possible to find True equality and diversity. The true equality and diversity that's possible living as sons and daughters of the living God. As part of his family. As his children. Coming home. So the gospel has something to say to our culture. They have Jesus. They have each other. And then notice thirdly in verse 29. They have an inheritance. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the way God makes us heirs of his promises, people who can claim his promises, people about whom his promises have things to say, is by making us his children. Not his racial children. That was the problem in Galatians. The Galatian church wanted people to become Jews to live as Christians. They wanted the males to be circumcised and the women to have to hear their male husbands saying, I thank God I'm not a woman every day and observe all the rules and regulations and rituals. So the way God makes us an heir is not, is not by making us a racial Jew. It's not to give us an Israeli passport. That's not what brings us into the kingdom. God doesn't have two peoples. An earthly people and a heavenly people. He's got one people. Neither Jew nor Greek. He's joined us together in the one gospel. Paul says, if anyone preaches a gospel other than the one I'm preaching, the gospel of the free grace of God, let him be eternally condemned. So if, if your eschatology and your theology has another gospel in it somewhere, then go and have a look at this passage. You, you, you might have to rethink some of that. There's one gospel, one people of God, and he doesn't make us racial children. We don't need an Israeli passport to inherit the promise. He makes us his spiritual children by faith in Christ and the promises of God. If we are children, he says in Romans 8, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if we share in his suffering. Now, this also is incredibly relevant to our cultural identity crisis right now. People in our culture, Generation Z and the millennials, and whatever the new one is, meta or something? I, 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 you'll tell me afterwards, won't you? People have no historical anchor. They've got no historical anchor. 
They have no sure and certain hope. And, and they, live, they live on Insta or TikTok in the moment. Like a piece of driftwood tossed around on the latest zeitgeist or trend. Lost in the sea of an immeasurably infinite universe. And the limit of your understanding of that is this. But look at the children of God. If you're a child of God through faith in the promises of God this morning, first thing, you have ancestral history. You go back a long way. You've got roots. Some of you will watch Who Do You Think You Are, the program on uh, BBC, where uh, you know some celebrity traces back their ancestry to who knows where. I remember watching Matthew Pinsent, the Olympic rower. He got back to the Plantagenet Kings, which was quite impressive. My son's quite interested in that stuff. He signed up for Ancestry.com and managed to track my line back to the court of Henry VIII. <laughs> I hope that impresses you. I, it becomes less impressive if I tell you the individual. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, we know who the guy was and we know, we know something of what he did, but I think there are a few, um, a few veils to be cast over some of that activity. I knew I came from aristocracy somewhere. <laughs> Never mind Les Mayego, it goes way beyond that. But as you sit here as the children of God this morning, hear this. You are part of a global community with a history that goes back thousands of years to an old man living on the far side of the river, Genesis tells us. Not part of God's place, far side of the river, with no relationship with God at all, who was called by God and was given a promise. And One night God spoke to this man, Abram, out in the middle of the darkness. Now, you know that as some of you might like stargazing. You don't get much of a chance to do it around here uh, for a number of reasons. One, the cloud, and two, the light pollution. But I'm told if you go to the Sahara Desert or any desert where there's no light at night time and the, the skies are clear and you look up at the stars, you would think that the sun was shining with stars. It's all you can see. Not just the bright ones. You can see them all. Billions of them. And God said to Abram, look up, Abram, into that sky. And do you see those stars, those billions of stars? Not just the three or four that we see in Hamilton. You see, you've got to, you got to get away from being bound to a west of Scotland culture where you're trying to interpret these kind of things. That's not just Venus, the moon, and that wee pole star up there. It's not three of them. This is billions he's talking about. See those stars out there. Go and look at them. I'm going to make your descendants that numerous. And when Abraham stood and looked up at the stars in the sky that night, if you're a child of God this morning, he saw you in one of those stars. You were one of them. You have a history. You're the product of that promise. But you also have a certain future. You're an heir of God. 
Did you notice that? Your heirs according to the promise. And joint heir with Jesus. Have you ever stopped to think about what that means? The whole universe belongs to Jesus. He made it. It's his. There's nothing in the universe that exists that isn't his. That's his inheritance. All its riches, all its joys, its beauty, its immensity, its unfathomability, its mysteries, its secrets, everything about it belongs to him. And brothers and sisters, all of that, all of that, not one tiny bit missing, all of that is yours to share equally with him. It's yours. The universe belongs to you if you're a child of God. You're caught up here in something enormous, something glorious. Now, take that into your daily work. You're not at school at the moment or university, but some of you aren't even in offices yet. But think of your classroom and campus and office tormentors, your Twitter and Insta, Insta trolls. Think of all those people that give you a bad time. They look back and they see no history. They look forward and they see no hope. Not hope like you have. And then they look around and they see no present security. But you're a child of God. You belong to Jesus Christ. And he is all the security you need in a world of turmoil. Jesus is your big brother. I wish I had a big brother at Les Mahiga High School back in the day. Because it was hard going to a wee gospel hall in a village. And I could fare it done with a big brother I said, I'll get my big brother onto you. Jesus is your big brother. Nothing can separate you from him. When the enemies of your soul crash in against you, to use a colloquialism without being disrespectful or, or, uh, or in any way ungodly, I hope, you can say to that opposition, I'll get my big brother onto you. Lord, please, please help me here. I need you here. Help me with this. He's your flesh and blood. His broken flesh and blood is there for your support and your healing. Now, knowing all that, how could you ever see the Christian life as dull drudgery? How could the Christian life ever appear Dull, routine, boring. Well, sometimes, sometimes children behave as slaves. Sometimes children behave as slaves. And as we move into the second half of this section, chapter 4, 1 to 11, Paul takes the specific issue of children behaving as slaves and he unpacks it further. And there are three sentences that he brings to us here. Once you were slaves, now you're children. How can children go back to being slaves? Let's look at the first one. Once you were slaves, verses 1 to 7, chapter 4. Paul describes two periods of life. The period when you were legally a child and the period when you became legally an adult. But more particularly, Paul is describing a child whose father has left a huge inheritance. 
But as long as the heir is legally a child, he's no different from a slave in the household. All the households back then had slaves. We're not endorsing slavery, by the way. Here, Paul isn't endorsing slavery. He's simply addressing the cultural circumstances that people would be familiar with and, and, and would understand the point he was making. Households had slaves back then. And the point Paul is making is that the, the child of the promised inheritance is actually no better than a slave until he becomes old enough to inherit it. Right? Because although he is legally a child, and technically and legally he owns the Holy State, he doesn't enter into the fullness of what that means until he becomes an inheritor at the age of majority. Now, this picture has a historical and a personal application. The historical application for these people, many of them Jewish, is this. The people of God in the Old Testament, the Jewish nation, only entered into full sonship when the time of Christ came. Right? That's what Paul means when he writes verses 4 and 5. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that's those who were living in the Old Testament, that we might receive the full rights of sons. So the Old Testament believers only received the full rights of sons when Christ came. In that historical sense, the people of God who lived under the law only came into the full liberty of the children of God when God sent his son made under the law so that they might be redeemed from the law and receive the full rights of sons. So therefore, Jewish people, you don't need to live the way the people lived before Jesus came, right? You don't need to keep all the laws and the rules and the rituals because they were kept in him. And you're free, you're free now. You're an adult now. You're not a child, right? You, see, this is the bit where, see if you like a sleep in a service. This is the bit to have a sleep because this is the technical bit. I'm uh, not a lot of application in this bit. So for the next five minutes or so, you can have a doze if you're predisposed in that way. This will not radically change your life, but it'll help your understanding. Then there's a personal application. It's true personally that we're all slaves and not children. So it's not just that the Jewish nation was in slavery. Paul's making the point at two levels here. We're all enslaved until Jesus comes in a personal sense. And when the Holy Spirit enters our hearts, before then we were like the, un, uh, the, the, the child before the age of majority, the child who, who had an inheritance he didn't know about until he reached his majority salvation and then became aware of what was his or hers. And that's us. We've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We've had an inheritance long before we knew about it. When we were born from our mother's womb, it was all there, but we weren't we weren't spiritually awake to it. We, we weren't in our spiritual majority, do you see? We hadn't reached... Spiritual maturity, that came when Christ came into our lives. And then we become aware of what's ours. So there's a personal application there as well. So historically for the whole people of God in the Bible, and personally for all of us, we only become full sons and daughters of God, full children of God, when Christ has come and when the Holy Spirit enters our hearts to apply the benefits of his redemption to us. But the question arises, 
What are we slaves to? Or to speak more grammatically properly, to what are we slaves? If God is saying there's two parts to your life, the part when you're a slave and the part when you're a child, what does he mean when he says you were a slave? Well, in chapter 3, 23, and in 4, 3, and 8, there are some hints that help us understand what Paul means here. In 3, 28, Paul says, the law held us prisoner. And in chapter 4, 3, and 8, there are hints that help us understand what Paul means here. We were locked up until faith should be revealed. In, verse, in, in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, when we were children, we were in slavery to the basic principles of the world. Now, that's a difficult phrase. This phrase, basic principles, it could mean a number of things. It could mean the elementary principles we learned when we were children, A, B, C, 1, 2, 3, that kind of thing. Or it could actually mean a rather more sinister thing. It could mean the principalities and powers that Paul speaks about in Ephesians 6 when he talks about the elementary powers of the world. And I think that's what he means here. When we were slaves, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But we need to think about this carefully. How could God's law, which is good, we all agree on that, how could God's law, which is good, become something sinister and make us opposed to God? How, how could that be a thing? How could that happen? Well, I think what Paul means here is that the evil one has taken this holy and good law of God and has twisted it to his own ends to bring us into slavery. Where have we seen that before? Where have we seen the evil one taking God's good word and twisting it to destroy us? Well, that's been his ploy since Eden, hasn't it? Taking God's word and twisting it so that what's intended for our good, you can have everything you like apart from that one thing and say, did God really mean that? Did God really say that? Are you sure? You know, think things might be better if he didn't hold out on you. And we know where that ended up. It destroyed us. And we live with the consequences of that on a global scale today. The evil one is subtle and is incredibly clever able to twist God's good word and destroy us with it. But what has the evil one done in relation to the law? How has he twisted that? Well, John Stott, there's another 1980s guy that half of you haven't heard of, John, and should have. John Stott helpfully says this, God intended the law to reveal sin and drive us to Christ. So when we see God's law, the Ten Commandments, and we see all the things that we ought not to do, we hold it up like a mirror and we say, ah, take it away. I'm so sinful. But the law is intended to make us feel that way so that we run to Christ for forgiveness. Who kept the law for us? When he held up the law, he said, yep, that's me, that's me, that's me too. That's me also, yep, I do that, yep, that's fully me, I'm comfortable with all of that. Because he was able to say that, 
we ought to go to him when we feel that way. But God intends the law to drive us to Christ. The evil one uses that same law to drive us to despair. So we see our sin and we despair of ourselves. We don't run to Jesus. We say, I'm rubbish, I'm hopeless. I'm just going to give up. I can't do this. Do you see? Twists a good thing for your destruction. And don't be under any illusion, folks, this morning. The evil one only has one agenda. Not to sideline you from Christian ministry or to stop you coming to church or anything like that. I mean, that's small fry. His ultimate aim is your eternal destruction. We're dealing here with eternal issues, remember. So God intended the law to reveal sin and drive us to Christ. Secondly, God meant the law to be used as a temporary step to putting us right with God. It was never meant to be the final word. But the evil one uses it as the final step in our condemnation. You can't do it, you'll never do it, you're done. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. The evil one uses it like a millstone round our neck from which there's no escape. This is the kind of slavery Paul's speaking about and it's important that we understand that it's directly related to the good word of God. Let me bring that closer to home. There are still people in our culture, maybe a decreasing number, who still live with the view that keeping the Ten Commandments or doing the best they can will see them right with God at the end of the day. But can you see how keeping the Ten Commandments is a twisting of the Word of God that leads people ultimately to despair and destruction? One of the reasons why our state churches are crumbling so much over the years is because when the heat comes on, there's no substance under this external view, this legalistic view. And it leads to destruction. But let me come closer still. The evil one sneaks these distortions into the minds of people even after they've become Christian believers. For you may believe that God saved you by grace. You may believe that. But secretly, you'll live as though your standing before him now depends on your own effort to maintain a certain level and to keep on the right side of the line, to keep in the green, to keep in credit. But if you're like me, you'll never maintain a standard that pleases yourself. Never mind him. Therefore, you'll have no security as you sit here this morning. You'll have no joy. You'll have lots of anxiety. Am I doing enough? Have I done enough? And you'll have no assurance. And this kind of slavery, you see, is a denial of the gospel. Can you see that? Can you see how this is a denial of the gospel? Notice what Paul says seriously about this in verse 8 of chapter 4. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Paul actually says that living with that kind of slavery means we don't actually know God at all. We don't really know God at all. If that's our view of God, we don't know him. 
Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, you belong to a different world. You belong to a world of grace, Paul says. You were slaves, but now you're children. This bit's a bit more straightforward. So if you've been sleeping for the last five minutes, or if the person next to you is sleeping, give them a dunt, and we're back on it. You were slaves, now you're children. That's a bit more straightforward. How do slaves become children? Well, the answer's in verse 4 to 7 of chapter 4. We become children because of two things God has done. Verse 4, do you notice? He has sent his son into the world. Jesus is the ultimate expression of the promise given to Abraham. The promise wasn't just a nebulous idea or a concept. The promise had a name, and the name of the promise was Jesus. He has redeemed us, said Paul, and that's a word from the slave market. A slave could experience freedom if the price of that freedom was paid. And Paul said, Jesus has redeemed us. He paid the price. He bought us back. That's the first thing God has done. He sent his son into the world. The second thing he's done in verse 6, you'll notice, he has sent his spirit into our hearts. The Holy Spirit takes all that Jesus has done and applies it to our hearts internally, spiritually. The Holy Spirit applies that redemption to every single believer in history. And that gives us the assurance, do you notice? The assurance that we are God's children. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit within us cries, Abba, Father. I'm a child now. Do you see? That's the Holy Spirit doing that. I'm a child now. Abba, Father. Now notice that the Holy Spirit doesn't rock up later in your Christian life to help you say that. The Holy Spirit rocks up at the start of your Christian life to enable you to say, God is my Father. You don't have a Christian life without the Holy Spirit. But when he comes, he makes you a son. He makes you a child, not a slave. So Paul's big question as we finish in verse 9 is, how on earth can children live as slaves anymore? What on earth are you doing living as slaves? Well, what's the mark of living as a slave? One word, externalism. Externalism. The externals of religious practice. Ah, that's right, you say. Those Pharisees and the Jewish religion, oh, they were terrible, weren't they? Look at you know, all that stuff. Jesus, remember, he said all that stuff here, like uh, painted tombs on the outside, nice to look at, but full of death and destruction inside. Oh, yeah, we, those Pharisees, they were terrible. But listen, he wasn't talking, Paul's not talking about Pharisees here. And let me say, brothers and sisters, that evangelical Christians can live in exactly the same slavery. Exactly the same slavery. Absorbed and obsessed with externals. Paul describes them in his context as special days and months and seasons and years. All the trappings of the Jewish religion. But as long as evangelicals in our culture maintain the right external show, the church attendance, the ritual, the breaking of bread participation in activities, a good reputation, maybe even admiration, they're content. 
There are some uncomfortable truths having to be faced by modern contemporary evangelicalism right now. If you haven't listened to the Mars Hill podcasts about Mark Driscoll's church, which sadly collapsed, they're worth a listen. If you haven't watched the Hillsong series on Disney Plus, they're worth a watch. And if you have the bravery, you might want to read some of the literature that's come out this week about Soul Survivor. Brothers and sisters, these aren't small issues. These aren't small issues. These situations arise when sons live as slaves, when the externals matter more than what's going on inside. When the show is everything. But inside it's corrupt. This is what Paul's speaking about here. And if your Christian life is marked by that kind of slavery, where the outside matters more than the inside, you'll lose two things. Firstly, you'll lose intimacy with your Heavenly Father. You'll be the kind of person who lives like the children in The Sound of Music in a regimented world where rules and regulations kept Dad happy. If you know that musical, they all came and sang in the stairs. Do you remember? They all marched on, sang in the stairs and marched off, keeping their father happy with rules and rituals, do you see? But no relationship. They tried to please him by their performance. And that's not what Christianity is about. That's living as a slave, not a child. So why did you come this morning? Why did you come here? Be honest. Did you come to get a green mark? Keep the credit up. Make God feel a bit better about you and make you feel a wee bit better about the fact that, well, I ticked that box today. Or did you come because you love him and you love these people and the relationship that you have with them during the week, you want to share that in community now because you're a child in the family. This is family. Folks, I know this is worrying for you, but you're going to share my company forever. So the family that you're sitting with aren't your forever family. We are our forever family. See, our father God is not like the father in the sound of music. He's like the father in the prodigal son story. He ran to meet the wayward son. Does your God run to you? When you run back to him, do you feel him running to you? When you say, oh, Stop again. I need, I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you. I'm coming back. I'm, I'm on my way. I'm coming. I'm coming back. And he comes every time and meets you and he sweeps you off your feet and he holds you fast. Does he shower you with affection and unconditional acceptance? 
If he doesn't and you don't know that, then you're living as a slave. You're not living as a son. It took me a catastrophe in my Christian life in the noughties to become someone who could wake up every morning and say, thank you, Lord, that I am a dearly loved child of God, which I still say every morning when I wake up. Don't let it take a catastrophe for that to have to happen to you. Run to him this morning. He's your father. You're his child. He loves you. And the second thing you'll lose, not only intimacy with your heavenly father, but you'll lose a sense of security. You'll always be anxious. Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? When I was an elder in Greenview, I had occasion, as comes with the territory, to visit people on their deathbeds. And you would be surprised at the number of people who lack assurance on their deathbed as Christians. I'm just not sure, David. You don't end up there on that moment. You end up there because you've lost intimacy. You've experienced life as a slave, not a son. You'll always be anxious. Have I pleased him enough? Have I done enough? That's why grace is such an important word. Thanks for choosing that, Ali. It's why it's the biggest word in the Christian gospel, undeserved favour. It's grace that brought us from darkness to light, not law and rituals. It's grace that gives us mercy and forgiveness, not keeping a list of rules. It's grace and grace alone that keeps me belonging to Jesus all of my life. Not marking a card and, tick, and, and, and keeping my attendance up. It's grace that makes him my child, his child. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God and Savior has ransomed me. We sang this this morning. And like a flood, a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. We sing it, you know, 10 times a year. And at home and in the car and wherever else we listen to it. So let me ask you this morning. Are you living as a son and daughter? Or are you living as a slave?